Remain standing for our scripture lesson, and we are reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 8 through 15. So hear these words, and I'm starting just at the end of 7. See that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this manner I give you my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Amen. Dear saints, you may be seated. We are continuing in this wonderful 8th chapter of 2 Corinthians. Lord willing, we'll finish it next Lord's Day, the 11th of February. And then we get to hear Ryan preach on the 18th, 25th. And Lord willing, the first Sunday in March, we would start up on chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians. But for now, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, Father, for your grace and your tender mercies to us in Jesus. Thank you for your kindness. Fill us with your spirit. May we ingest Jesus Christ by grace today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So after preaching last Sunday's sermon on God's grace in his churches, particularly the churches in Macedonia and the church in Corinth and the church in Judea, I went home and I was thinking about it, and it dawned on me that you, the Redeemer Church, have it all. You have the blessing of Corinth and that you are enormously gifted. You have the blessing of Macedonia in that You are incredibly generous, as your financial reports will show later today, if you haven't already seen them. And you are in every way blessed by God, even as the church in Judea was as well. You are gifted in Jesus. Now, what does that mean for us? That means that we need to go as low and humble as we possibly can and then go on the offensive against all gods and our enemies, being busy in the work of the ministry, taking down all opposition to the truth of Jesus Christ and establishing the kingdom of God as the church on the earth. Now, someone might say it's just not fair. Why should these people be so blessed? Why should a humble-sized church be filled with so many blessings, so many good things, so many riches, so many wonderful things, so many treasures? That doesn't seem fair, someone might say. And this morning we're going to talk about fairness and seek to clear up some common and understandable misconceptions about fairness. 
The world's idea of fairness is very different from God's prerogatives in his dealings of fairness, if you will. And the world thinks fairness is equity, but an equity on its own terms. So it's always a convenient equity for the world. It's not actually a level playing field, but it's a, a sort of illusion, a deception of equity, which doesn't actually exist. God's establishment of fairness is covenantal. It's entirely different. It is based in the ecclesiastical structures of his kingdom, his church on earth. And that's how he distributes fairness, by displaying the universally available love of God in Jesus Christ to all people. And that's part of our great privilege is to preach the gospel indiscriminately to everyone. And so in light of all this, let's make it our goal this Resurrection Day to relish the wonder of the God of grace and mercy. Studying together 2 Corinthians 8, 8 through 15, titled Fairness God's Way. And if you are new and you'd like to use the outline, we start here. The doctrine of these verses, God's fairness is grounded in an incredible divine irony, I-R-O-N-Y. A mystery, something that's hard to grasp, but something we wouldn't expect. Now this irony we will behold momentarily, but for now suffice it to say that it costs God everything and it costs us nothing at all. And yet we become the astounded, almost incredibly rapturous, recipients of all the benefits of this irony of God in the gospel of grace in Jesus and what he's done for us. Indeed, it is true that God's fairness is grounded in an incredible divine irony. First, Christ unfairly bore our sin for us. Now, of course, when we say that it was unfair, we don't mean unjust. What we do mean is that God did it not according to human standards at all. Not at all. If we were operating on the world's pompous standards and definition of fairness and justice, and we equitably applied its yardstick to all of us consistently, then all of us are consigned to absolute misery, death, hell, condemnation, wrath, and destruction starting now and lasting forever. Not such a good deal. So the world's ideas of fairness aren't looking so well. But instead of all this, Jesus Christ comes here in his incarnation as the God-man. He dies for an elect church, bearing our sins on himself, the righteous and innocent substitute and sacrifice. Now Romans 5.8, listed on your outline, is a classic case here. Quoting Paul, he said, God shows his love for us in in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were his enemies, Christ died for us. This is the fairness of God. It's an ironical one. Was God unjust in saving some, the elect church, and not all people everywhere? Indeed, Was God unjust or unfair in redeeming any sinners in the way that he did through the second person of the Trinity becoming a man, dying in our place as the perfect substitute? Was he unfair or unjust? The answer is no. 
The sovereign Lord possessed within himself the privilege and right to do that. Here's how Paul put it in a beautiful collation of Romans 3, 25a and 26b. Christ was put forward by God as a propitiation or atoning sacrifice by his blood so that he, God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Christ unfairly bore our sin for us, and our Father unfairly gave us everything in Jesus. Again, when we say unfairly, we don't really mean it. We're not saying it is unfair. What we do mean is that according to the world's self-righteous standard, which it itself does not and cannot keep, it would be thought allegedly unfair. And yet, he did it, God did. Why did God the Father give us, his elect and redeemed church, everything in his universe, when we did nothing to deserve it, indeed did everything not to deserve it? Why would God do that? Good question. The answer is because our Father bequeaths everything on us in Christ, his own natural Son, who did do everything to deserve it. And then God the Father, upon Christ's resurrection and ascension into heaven and has been crowned the Lord and King of glory, entitled Jesus Christ to do whatever he wanted with his benefits that he accrued at his death and resurrection. And what Jesus does, by the Father's blessing and the Holy Spirit too, is to be the head and only Savior and source of life for the body of his church, and in himself he chooses to give all good gifts to us, even as per Ephesians 4, 8b. He gives gifts to men in the church, men and women, boys and girls. He gives us gifts. So the Son of God, having received everything from the Father, gives his people, his church, his elect people, all his benefits and pleasures, goods and treasures. Jesus Christ is the treasure chest of all God's goodness. He is the person of it. Indeed, as 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 23 indicates, and it's on your outline, everything is included. Paul there says we're given earth, heaven, God, everything. Nothing's left out. Beautiful thing that you have, children of God. A great and wonderful inheritance. Let's do the exegesis of these amazing verses 8 through 15, chapter 8, 2 Corinthians, and study how God's fairness works in his church. Now, this fairness has feet to it, it both impacts the true church and pulses through us. Now, let us follow the Holy Spirit's guidance in discerning. How God's fairness works in his church. First, unshackled hearts are transformed by the marvelous Christ. Verses 8 and 9. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now, dears, do you notice how tender and pastoral and gentle the apostles being here with these Corinthians, with whom, especially in the first letter, 
to the Corinthians. He had to be rather stern and, and authoritarian. Here, he chooses not to impose or exercise his legitimate apostolic authority, but rather to be very gentle. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others, etc. He instructs them gently, being quite certain that what he, Paul, is requesting of them, they're more than happy to do, and what they had promised to do a year or so earlier, they are still very much willing to do, keep their previous commitment. And what greater way to drive that point home but to look to the supreme model of grace and abundance and wonder and love and mercy and kindness, and that being the Lord Jesus Christ himself as he does in verse 9. That verse should take some particular attention from us. Our Lord Christ there, I'm going to read it again because it's amazing. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So I'm going to teach you what that means. Our Lord Christ, the second person of the Holy Trinity, possessed all the benefits and wonder of deity with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit from all eternity. But in time and space, in this cruel, fallen, and God-hating world, The second person of the Holy Trinity humbled himself and emptied himself by taking on himself forever, forever, humanity, our human nature. That's how he humbled himself and became poor to make us rich. Had he not done that, we would be not only paupers and miserable, but condemned and hellbound. Now this is what Paul means by this verse 9, the incarnation of Jesus, and he also means it in the so-called kenosis passage of Philippians 2, 5 through 8. So by Jesus doing this, <clears throat> he made us rich, even as he became poor. And it's because we now, in Christ Jesus, as his wealthy parishioners, love him, we exercise grace in and as his church. Our transformation in Christ as new creatures makes us willing and and humble and joyful contributors to the glory of his holy name, to do his perfect and pleasant bidding by his grace alone. So this is how God's fairness works in his church. Unshackled hearts are transformed by the marvelous Christ. Nothing needs to be wrenched out of you. And teachable hearts are inspired by tender, loving instruction. Verses 10 through 12. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish it as well, so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So Paul continues in this gentle pastoral strain, fatherly strain. And this is very practical instruction. Bottom line, basically, this is what the apostle is saying, and it applies to us too. He's saying to the Corinthians, in my apostolic humble judgment as one who loves you, 
he would say, this is what's best for you. Keep the momentum that you generated a year ago. Trust God that you will be able, by his grace, to complete this gift of love, this gift package to be sent to the Jerusalem church by the time Titus and the other ministers show up, which will be mentioned later in chapter 8, in Corinth to transfer that gift eventually to Judea. And in the meantime, recognize that your gracious Heavenly Father accepts the will for the deed. In other words, you have the desire to do it. It's in your heart. He accepts the will for the deed in that you can only do what God has actually equipped you to do and provided you to do, the resources. That's what he's saying. So you, dear Redeemerite saints, in the same vein, you get to realize and recognize that your kind and gentle Heavenly Father loves you more than you can ever imagine or more than you could ever love or care for yourself. He, he genuinely, wholeheartedly, passionately loves you, his church. And your giving and your generosity are never to be stressful. They aren't, it's not stressful. Your giving and your generosity is not stress-laden. It's never guilt-driven. And it's not ever man-pleasing. None of this is ever of the Holy Spirit. So if anyone's ever tempted to have those feelings, recognize that's not of the Holy Spirit. Instead, God would say to you, enjoy yourselves as the children of God. Relish the pleasure and joy of life in the covenant in Jesus Christ. And you're giving in him. And as you do this, you will do three things. You'll glorify your God, you'll bless your church, and you'll aid the entire world. Because as the church is blessed, the world benefits as well. One of the reasons that you, by God's grace, especially at this point in our history, 128 years almost, are such a beautiful church, is because, by God's grace, He has caused you both to have, possess, and enjoy your glorious liberties, your freedom from all the bondage of the world's religion, all the laws of men, all the pressures of society, to be who you are in Christ Jesus. And you show that by your lives. How God's fairness works in his church. Unshackled hearts are transformed by the marvelous Christ. Teachable hearts are inspired by tender, loving instruction. And finally, faith-filled hearts are liberated by our confidence in our Father's providence. Verses 13 to 15. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that, as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. And by the way, that's a reference to the collecting of manna. They would collect the manna six days and not on the Sabbath. We collect the manna one day on the Sabbath and get to use it in the six days. Now this is covenantal fairness that's being referred to here. Covenantal fairness. We were talking uh, this morning in Christian Ed about covenantal worship. 
This is covenantal fairness in all its glory. Notice that there is here ecclesiastical reciprocity to explain one church's abundance in benefiting another is also receiving the other church's wonderful provision of endowments. One may be financial and material, and the other may be especially spiritual and covenantal. It's a beautiful thing how the church operates. Indeed it is. All of this is done out of God-given and God-ordained abundance. See, dears, in the kingdom of God, we operate completely different than the world. In the kingdom, the church, the faithful church, there is never a handout. Handouts are not given. And no true saint ever has his or her hand out. This is not done. This is below our dignity and honor. Even as creatures made in the image of God. But especially recreated. Needs in the church are always met. But they're engaged with personal dignity and honor. And respect for the people that need whatever it is. And those who are recipients, be it material, goods, financial provision, whatever it is, return the favor with other spiritual and covenantal endowments. We do no one any good by pandering to their flesh, their pride, their idolatry, and their supposed self-sufficiency, hidden behind uh, the cloak of the carnal nature. But we do God's people, his church, a great good by meeting each other's needs. Now, dears, I need to teach you this now because it's important. Wise stewardship in the church requires serious ecclesiology. Ecclesiology that's well thought out. As you have been in that vein for many years, continue in it. Know who you are, why you do what you do, and what you are to do. I encourage you all that as you have the responsibility, and it's not an easy one, of administering an enormous treasure chest of grace and resources in this beautiful church, trust your good, holy, and gracious Heavenly Father. He will show you what to do. He will provide you the wisdom, the guidance. Trust Him. But be wise. Never follow the world's way, always follow the scripture's way, the covenantal way. He'll show you as you humbly rely on him in and through your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> well, as always, let's do a little more use, okay? Let's apply this even more to our lives today and see why fairness God's way is the only real fairness in the world. Now, this truth about fairness is really a kind of neat segue or avenue into sharing the gospel with people in the world because they're inflamed with the idea of fairness, right? And justice. They don't know what it is, they don't practice it, and they don't experience it, but they're interested in it. So this becomes an opportunity for us to engage them with these kinds of revolutionary and amazing truths of the gospel. Many people in the world, indeed, have made this concept the cardinal creeds of their doctrine. So therefore, let us pay close, close attention 
to why fairness God's way is the only real fairness in the world. First, because if God was fair in man's way, we are all doomed. There's no one really, if they understood, wants fairness. Not really. Not where it really counts. Especially if they understand it accurately, nobody wants fairness. Because all that is is hell and damnation. One of the problems that we have as sinners, completely affected by the fall, like every other part of the created universe, especially the rational beings, humans, we have this problem. We forget we're always swimming in a sea of utter condemnation. We have the illusion that there's some neutrality out there, some safe place, or some place where people can get on an island of fairness. Doesn't exist. We're all swamped over in a complete sea of condemnation and death. We're conceived spiritually dead at rebellion against God. There's no goodness in us. And in this ocean of death, we vainly and mistakenly think that there can be equity among dead and condemned people. All we're really doing is saying this dead and condemned person can die this way, and this dead and condemned person can die that way, and this one can suffer this misery, and this one can suffer that misery. What good is that? The truth is, the only fairness that would be here on the world standard of equity would be universal judgment unto hell and damnation. So, if the world really wants its standard, we're all dead. We're all doomed. We all go to hell. We all suffer eternal condemnation for our sin. Which, of course, would be a righteous judgment. And God would be purely within his rights to do that. But we don't serve a God like that. He has an elect church. The only fairness that functionally means anything good for us is God's fairness. And that counts us sinners as justified on the basis of Christ having substituted for us and then this blessed atonement of our Messiah being imputed to us by the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. That's fair. It's fair because another one, a perfect and satisfactory one, has done the work for us. He's paid the penalty for us. This is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He really did suffer for our sin, and he really did apply his righteousness to us, his holy, beloved, elect, but still sinful saints of his church. What do we prefer, man's fairness or God's? This covenantal fairness, this salvific fairness, is the gospel. Why fairness God's way is the only real fairness in the world. Because if God was fair in man's way, we're all doomed. And because sovereign grace overwhelms brutal, legal fairness. The world is taken up with brutal, legal, painful, oppressive, slave-driving, law, guilt, manipulation, the burdens of conscience and obligation, pressing upon you and me and all other people their own gospels and their works. The redeemed church of God operates under grace in and through the fullness and power of the Holy Spirit by which we live in grace and not under the law. 
This is the glory of salvation and liberation from the bonds of religion and law and works. This is an abandonment unto the Lord Jesus Christ and complete love for him because of the astounding wonders he has achieved for us on the cross and in his resurrection for us. Legal fairness. Anyone want to be a legalist in any form in religion? Legal fairness is nothing less than slavery to some law that alleges to bring salvation through one's own supposedly good works. A lot of times people will do things out of guilt. Well, I've sinned, and I'll do something to make up for it. Penance, complete slavery, no gospel. Gospel fairness is absolutely freeing, liberating. It sets you completely free in Jesus. It assures us of our right standing with God, and it unhinges us from all the chains of moral and spiritual slavery. It also gives us universal latitude to share this good news with all people indiscriminately in love. Relish your freedom in Christ, dear saints. Guard it. Watch out. Satan wants to steal it from you, and every sinner does too, because they don't want to see you happy and free, liberated and unshackled when they are tied up in their sin. Oh, yes. Relish it by continuing to trust in your glorious Redeemer, the one who shed his blood for you and for the forgiveness of your sins, and who rose on your behalf for your justification, that his blood has cleansed away all your sins. Beloved, today's text, fairness God's way. Do you like God's fairness? I know I do. I trust you do. Fairness God's way is the only fairness. In the power of the Holy Spirit, let us bless Jesus Christ for fairness God's way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this kind of fairness. What a joy and privilege and honor it is to have this fairness that you've so bountifully provided us. Thank you that... Jesus Christ died for us miserably lost, hopelessly lost sinners could never have done anything for ourselves. Thank you. You freed us from the burdens of the world and the law, condemnation, guilt, manipulation, all wickedness. You have caused your children to be free, to enjoy you, to live in the fullness of your light. In Jesus Christ, we give you thanks. Amen.